Open up your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, if you have one of our uh, black Bibles, it's on page 941. We're going to look at verses 1 through 18 today, okay? 1 through 18 today. Last week, we did an overview series on the whole book, kind of getting us uh, in a mindset of what we're to expect here. Today, we're going to dig in on these first 18 verses that are commonly referred to as the prologue uh, of, uh, or introduction of John's gospel. For John goes into telling the narrative uh, stories of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. He begins with this, this incredible summary of who Jesus is. But these, these first 18 verses read more like a hymn of praise. Like we just got done singing songs and now we're, we're transitioning into speaking the word. But, but we can join in even as we hear these in worship to God. This is like a hymn of praise more than it is a synopsis of information with poetry, with, with beauty and style, John presents us with one of the most exalted views of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. We all need an exalted view of Jesus Christ, do we not? So I want to read these 18 verses in, in uh, their entirety, and I just want us to, to soak it in for a minute together, and then I'll pray and we'll dig in. John 1. 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we've all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the revelation of your word. We thank you for what your word reveals. We pray this morning that as your word unfolds to us, that your spirit would lift our eyes to Jesus Christ. To behold his glory so that we might behold your glory. And we pray this so that you would be exalted 
in our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been coming to Redeemer for at least a few weeks, chances are you've probably heard me say at some point or another, we come to hear the word and not what? The preacher, right? We come to hear the word and not the preacher, but we need preachers who will preach the word. But what exactly is the word? I think most of us would readily use that term interchangeably with the Bible or with Scripture, and and we would be right to do so. But that's not how John uses that phrase in the opening lines of his gospel. John uses that term to refer to something even greater, actually someone even greater than the written word of God. He uses it to refer to the living word of God, Jesus Christ. You know, it's possible for us to have a high view of Scripture, an exalted view of Scripture, and yet still have a low view of Jesus Christ. At different times and in different ways, even when we say that we trust in the reliability of the Bible, and we can and we should because it's the Word of God, God never lies, it's, it's faithful and true and eternal. Even at times when we say we trust in the reliability of the Bible, we still fail to fully rely on Jesus himself. Our, our formal faith, if you will, in the written word doesn't always translate into our functional faith in the living word. In these verses, John's going to lift our eyes. He's going to lift our eyes to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and help us see that as the living word, Jesus is the fullest expression of who God is. So if we want to know God, then we must know Jesus Christ. We need to know Jesus Christ. And in this introduction to his gospel, John's going to present Jesus as the uncreated word and the incarnated word. The uncreated word and the incarnated word. Let's look at the uncreated word. Listen again to the, to, to the, the poetic beauty of verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Notice these these parallel statements that John uses here. Verse 1 starts with the phrase, in the beginning. Verse 2 ends with that same phrase. And then you move inward into verse 1, and the next part says, and the word was with God. And then in verse 2, he repeats that again. He was with God in the beginning. These first two verses are like, like a mirrored set of stairs that lift you with each step to the pinnacle conclusion at the top. What's in the middle right there at the, the end of verse 1, right before verse 2? This pinnacle declaration in the middle of these parallel statements. And the word was God. The word that John is describing here is distinct from God the Father. John says the word was with God. He's describing the unique relationship that Jesus has with God the Father as God the Son. But in his pinnacle statement, in the, in the crescendo of these first two verses, John clarifies that the word that is distinct from God is also the same God. The word was with God, and the word is God. Jesus is not only the Son of God. We call him that. He calls himself that. People call him that, but he's also God the Son. He's not just the Son of God. He's also God the Son. And this, this is a loaded statement here. It's a short statement, but it is 
a powerful statement. John's description of Jesus as the Word begins to formulate our understanding of the Trinity. When you came in, you probably grabbed a handout that talks more about that because there's no way we're going to cover all of the information about the Trinity this morning or really ever, okay? Um, but but here's a... Here's a Allow me to, to couple a, a few statements together that helps us think through this. There is only one God, and he exists eternally as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God. We have to have the ands in there. The, 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 they are, they're, they're co-eternal, meaning that God has always existed as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. They're co-equal, meaning that they are one and the same in essence and in nature because they are one and the same God. The word was with God, and the word is God. There is only one God. The Father, the Son, the Spirit are not three parts that make up a whole. In their godness, they are one and the same. In their godness, they are one and the same, but each person of the Trinity has a distinct role to play in creation and redemption and in the final restoration. The whole story of Scripture unfolds, and we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit interacting in different ways. Here's a way to remember it, okay? Same wholeness, different roleness. You won't forget it. You won't forget it. Same wholeness, different rollness. This is why John can say that the word was with God and that the word was God in the beginning. Jesus is fully God. And as God the Son, he enjoys a unique relationship with God the Father and with God the Spirit. We could spend literally the rest of our lives unpacking the wonders of this reality. And we ought to because this is something that God has revealed to us. Yes, it's something that we can't fully grasp, but it is something that God has made known. And all it does is lift our eyes off of ourselves to the exalted God who made us and redeemed us. But for now, we're going to move on because there's still a question that we have yet to answer. Why? Why does John call Jesus the Word? In the beginning was the Word. Why does he call him the Word? John was Jewish. So he thought like a Hebrew, like a, like a descendant of Abraham. Jew and Hebrew, one and the same, okay? But he didn't write his gospel in the Hebrew language. We, we were in, uh, in the, the, the book of Genesis recently, and that was written in Hebrew. John wrote his gospel in Greek, and he wrote it both for people who thought like Hebrews and for people who didn't think like Hebrews, for the Greek-speaking Jews, but also for the Greek-speaking Gentiles, Okay? And the Greek word that John uses for the word word here, you following, is logos. Logos, okay? Logos, however you want to say it. I'm going to say logos. The term logos refers to a spoken message or an oral expression. And John's use of this term, his choice of this word to refer to Christ as the logos, it's, it's incredible, this is masterful writing here, especially when it's coupled with his opening line, in the beginning, in the beginning was the logos. 
and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Having gone through the book of Genesis recently, that phrase, in the beginning, we ought to be like, John, you stole that, right? Those three words not only start the book of Genesis, but of the entire Bible. And now John here is using them to, to start his gospel. What did God do when he created everything? He spoke. He spoke. He put a word out, right? A verbal expression. Each day of the creation account begins with, and God said, let there be this, and, and it was so. Right? Creation came into being through God's spoken message, through his word. In Greek philosophy, in that day, in John's day, logos was, was thought of as this abstract logic and, and reason that brought everything into existence, this inanimate thing. So for John's Greek-thinking audience, he took what they understood to be a principle and he made it a person. Isn't that incredible? What you think is just way out here in the ether. No, no, no. He's right here. It's not just abstract principle. This is God himself. And his, his Hebrew thinking audience already understood that God spoke creation into being. They also understood the rest of the Hebrew Bible, a.k.a. the Old Testament. They knew that to be God's revelation of himself to his people, to them as his people. Over and over in the Old Testament, God revealed himself by speaking through a person as his representative. One of the most repeated phrases in the Old Testament is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Especially when we get into the prophets, but all throughout. This is the word of the Lord. Moses said it to the, to the people. Everybody. Anybody that God used in the Old Testament spoke to his people through them. And so John borrowed the opening words of the Hebrew Bible and he used them as the opening words of his gospel to help his Hebrew-thinking audience see that as the logos, as the word, Jesus is not only the greatest expression and revelation of God, he is the word of the Lord, but also that Jesus is the same God who said, who spoke creation into being. The logos was with God, and the logos was God. We could dwell on those two verses forever. Let's keep going. As if that's not amazing enough. Listen, verse 3. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. John is letting all of his readers know uh, uh, Greek-speaking Jews and Greek-speaking Gentiles, that Jesus is the uncreated logos of God because Jesus is the self-existent and eternal God who spoke everything else into existence by his powerful word. Excuse me. In Jesus is life because in God is life. And just as he spoke light into darkness and at the creation of the universe, Jesus is the true light that shines in this world darkened by sin and death. And even though that darkness has overcome all of us, guess what? It did not overcome him. It did not overcome him. That word overcome 
in the Greek conveys a picture of someone grasping something to take hold of it. And it can refer either to comprehension or to apprehension. So listen to this. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not understood the light. And the darkness cannot overtake the light. I told you it keeps getting better. Think about that for a minute. What an important truth for us to not only know, not just say, oh yeah, that's in the Bible, but to actually live in the confidence of. How often do we say that Jesus is on the throne while we continue to live in fear of the dark things as if they have greater authority than he does? When the doctor calls, says we found something on the scan, what do we do? What do we do when the boss calls and says, hey, we need to let some people go? What do we do when the bank calls and says that, that loan payment is overdue? What do we do when the congressman floods our inbox with warnings that our rights and freedoms are in jeopardy? Do we run to the light? Or do we close our eyes, start groping around in the darkness and white-knuckle the very first thing that feels secure? What do we do? The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not, nor will it ever, overcome him. One of the incredible things about the light is that it exposes our weakness and our need without burning us up without destroying us, because that same light, at the same time, it also reveals the beauty and the warmth of God in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And in his faithful love, Jesus beckons us to come to him and be honest about what we fear so that he can over and over again gently remind us that we don't need to be afraid. Take heart, because that which we fear did not and cannot overcome him. And believer, if you're in Christ, then you're his forever. And that means that it cannot overcome you. No matter how dark the darkness gets, even, even if and or when it brings us to death itself, we will not truly be overcome by it because Jesus is our light and in him we have eternal life that can never be snuffed out. Darkness cannot overcome him. Whether we admit it or not, we're all still afraid of the dark. I slept with a nightlight well into high school. Don't tell anybody. It's just for you. We're all afraid of the dark, right? What's in your life that you know that you can't handle? but then that you also think that Jesus can't handle. When we know that we can't handle it, we're being honest. When we think that Jesus can't handle it, we're lying to ourselves. Jesus can handle what you and I can't. Why? Because he's the true light and the true life. The darkness is never dark to him. Read David's Psalm 139. It says that about God. 
Jesus can always see what we cannot. And because he is the light that shines in the darkness, listen, if we just open our eyes, guess what we can see? The light. We will see him if we just open our eyes and look. John's going to develop this concept of light versus dark in greater detail throughout his gospel. We'll see this again and again. But he's not the only John who testifies about the light. Look at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now, John who wrote this gospel is not talking about himself here in verse 6. In fact, he never mentions himself by name throughout the gospel. He uses another term, which we'll talk about later when we get to it. The John that he's referring to here is John the Baptist. We'll hear more about John the Baptist in the rest of chapter 1 when we look at that next week. But here's what we know right now from these verses that we just read. John the Baptist was sent by God. He was not the light. He was a man with a God-given mission to witness the light, to see it for himself, and then to testify about the light so that those who heard his message would then believe in the light. And what was his testimony? That the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. John the Apostle, the gospel writer, takes John the Baptist's message and elaborates on it in the next verses. And this is where we go from Jesus as the uncreated word, the uncreated logos, to Jesus as the incarnated word. Look at verse 10. He was in the world. And the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The true light that John the Baptist was talking about is the same light that John the apostle is talking about is Jesus. In verse 10 and 11, John the apostle elaborates on the extent of the darkness that was in the world when the true light came into it, this darkness that could not comprehend the light. The creator of the world entered his creation as a Jew, and yet when Jesus came into the world, the world itself did not recognize him as their creator, and his own people, the Jews, did not recognize him as their Messiah. Nobody recognized him for who he was. They did not receive him as the true light. Instead, they rejected him in unbelief. And they rejected the logos, the word of God. And their rejection of him was so hostile that they put him to death on a cross. But even though his own people didn't know him, he knew them and he knew every other human being he created. He knew the depth of the darkness of our hearts. And so the creator of the world came into the world in order to redeem the world. So that, that by giving his own life on the cross as a sacrifice in the place of sinners, then we could find life in him. And the darkness of evil and death cannot overcome the true light. And on the third day, what did he do? He walked out of a dark tomb, Right? And the light of life got up out of the grave and rose from the dead in order to bring true light and true life to all 
who recognize him for who he is, who receive him, who rely on him, whether they be Jew or Gentile. I told you it keeps getting better. John says all who receive Jesus, and then he explains it a little further, those who believe in his name, all who rely on all that Jesus is and says and does, to those people, Jesus gives the ability and the authority to be called children of God. Now, there's a sense in which all people are, are children of God because God is their creator, but that's not what John is referring to here. Even though God created us, our sin condemns us. Our sin condemns us to eternal judgment under his holy wrath. In fact, Paul later in Ephesians says we, we are children under wrath. That's not the kind of child I want to be. It means that nobody can say, God and I are good because he made me. You can't say, nobody, uh, God and I are good because I, I've been made in, in his image. It's not enough to be created by God, although that's a glorious reality, isn't it? We need to be recreated by God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new what? Creation. The old is gone. Behold. See. Look up. The new has come. Our old relationship with God has been marred by our sin, and so we need a new relationship with him. And that new relationship comes through new birth. And John makes that clear in verse 13, that the new birth, that new birth that he's talking about can only be brought about by God. He says it can't come by natural descent. In other words, nobody can claim to be born into the heavenly family based on the earthly family that they were born into. Now, this would have been especially important for, the John, for uh, John's Jewish audience to understand because as Jews, they base their relationship with God on their shared genealogy with Abraham. We'll see Jesus interact with some Pharisees in, in chapter 8 all around this very thing. But it also means that we can't stand here and say, I'm good with God because my parents are good with God. Or my grand, grandma or grandpa believed in him. John also says that the new birth doesn't come by the will of the flesh. In other words, nobody can claim to be a child of God based on their own desire or passion. What the Bible makes absolutely clear over and over and over again is that because of our inherent sin nature, we naturally desire to rebel against God and not to draw near to him. God must first draw us to himself before we ever willingly come to him. Finally, John says that the new birth doesn't come by the will of man. Now, that sounds like, like are you just repeating yourself right there? It sounds like the same thing, right? But it's slightly different. In the Greek, the will of the flesh refers to passion. And, and the, the, the picture that he's painting here is, is, is passion that, that results in the conception of a child. He's talking about being children right here. While the will of man is the picture of planning that leads to the conception of a child. The will of the flesh is focused on emotion. The will of man is focused on effort, but nobody can earn by their own effort his or her way into the family of God. Can't be done, John says. One commentary summarizes it this way. Behind every decision a person makes to turn and receive Jesus stands the decision of God to give that person new life. John says this right to be called children of God is not of man. It's of God. It's of God. 
And how did God bring this about? This is incredible. He did it by becoming one of us. Look at verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The word, the logos that was with God in the beginning and that was God in the beginning became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled among John and the other disciples. That's the us that he's referring to there. If, if verse 1 was a callback to the book of Genesis, then verse 14 is a callback to the book of Exodus and the rest of the Torah through the book of Deuteronomy. After God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, he gave Moses instructions to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle was this sacred tent where God dwelt in the midst of his people, among them, and he made his glory and his presence known to them. Again, John's wordplay here. So good. It's so purposeful. By saying that the word became flesh and dwelt among them, tabernacled among them, John is pointing to Jesus as the true tabernacle of God through which God would ultimately and completely make his glory and his presence known to all of his people. Because John and the other disciples observed his glory as the one and only son from the Father, John's gospel is an eyewitness testimony. We have seen it. With our own eyes, he says, it's an eyewitness testimony to the glory and presence of God in Jesus Christ. And here in these opening lines of his gospel, John is giving us then a glimpse of the glory that he himself has seen along with his other disciples. Friends, as the uncreated Lagos, Jesus is fully God. As the incarnated Lagos, Jesus is fully human. But he didn't stop being God in order to become man. John makes that clear when he says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. I love, this might be my favorite part of the whole thing, okay? Remember God's description of himself in Exodus 34, 6 and 7? We looked at it a couple weeks ago. In Exodus 33, just before that, Moses begged God, please let me see your glory. Let me see your glory. And God responded, I will cause all of my goodness a.k.a. glory, I will, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But then he added, you cannot see my face. You cannot see my face for humans cannot see me and live. Why? Because God is infinitely holy. He's the purest form of purity. And what is man's heart consumed by? Darkness and sin. You cannot be in the presence of that kind of holiness and live. And in his grace, God made a way for Moses to do that. The Lord said, here's a place near me. You are to stand on the rock, and when my glory passes by, a.k.a. my goodness, I will put you in the crevice of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, 
but my face will not be seen. So the next morning, Moses climbs up the, to the top of Mount Sinai to meet with the Lord, and the Lord came down in a cloud, and he stood with him there, and he proclaimed his name, the Lord. He, Moses, this is what my name means. This is who I am. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and rebellion and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. You know how God did that? He covered Moses with his hand so that Moses wouldn't die. You know what he covered us with? the blood of his own son. He did not withhold his wrath. He put his hand on his son so that we could see his face. Listen. Exodus 34 says that God is abounding in faithful love and truth. God's faithful love is his grace to forgive iniquity and rebellion and sin. He just said it in Exodus 34. What does John say that Jesus is full of? Grace and truth, a.k.a. abounding in faithful love and truth. As the Lagos who became flesh, Jesus is the total embodiment of all that God is. Hebrews 1.3, read it before we sang this morning. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. God made his glory known to Moses on the mountain back in Exodus 34, and God's glory is his goodness expressed as his faithful love and truth. Now John wants his readers to know that the God who came down wrapped in a cloud on Mount Sinai, is the same God who came down wrapped in a human body, in humanity itself, and made his goodness known through another name, which John finally gives us in verse 17. In essence, John is saying this, the same glory that Moses saw on the mountain is the same glory that we saw in the man. Jesus Christ. I told you it gets better. Is that not incredible? At first glance, verse 15 seems like it breaks up the flow of thought from verses 14 through 17, but it serves as yet more proof that Jesus is truly God in the flesh and ultimate, the ultimate manifestation of God's glory. John the Baptist was born six months before Jesus was. He also began his public ministry before Jesus did, and yet he said, which we will also see again uh, later in chapter one, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. What John the Baptist said agrees with what John the gospel writer has been saying, that Jesus is the eternally self-existent God. He's the uncreated logos, Right? John the Baptist was also the final prophet in a long line that stretched back through the Old Testament. One of the most important roles of the prophets was to prepare God's people for the coming of the Messiah. That was John the Baptist's role too. But guess what he got to do that none of the other prophets got to do? He got to see the Messiah. He got to actually physically look and say, that's the one. 
This is the one. How, how does he start in verse 15? This is the one about whom I said. Look, there he is. Again, it agrees with what John the gospel writer has been saying this whole time, that Jesus is the word who became flesh. He is the incarnated Logos. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully human, full of grace and truth. Incredible. And John says in verse 16, indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. In the, const- in the, in the context of that statement, the we in verse 16 is referring to John and the other disciples. Remember, he wrote this in a time and a place for a people. But no doubt now it includes us as believers along with them. What does he mean, though, by grace upon grace? That phrase can also be translated grace in place of grace. That doesn't really help clarify super great for us, though, right? Unless we understand its connection to what John says in verse 17. It says, for. That means because. We've received grace upon grace because the law was given to Moses through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, we often pit the law and grace against one another, but John is actually pointing to the giving of the law as an act of God's grace. Okay, I I think I said the last thing was my favorite thing, but this is my favorite thing, okay? God gave the law to his wayward people so that they would know his holiness and his glory and respond to him with trust and obedience to the word that he had given to them, the word of the law. But the law could not give them life. Why? Because they could not obey it. They could not obey it, and you have to obey it perfectly. You break one, you break, you've broken them all. Jesus says that. They broke it, and they sinned against God, and they condemned themselves to death. But the law showed the people their need by revealing their sinfulness, but the law itself could not do anything to remove their sin. They could reveal it. It could reveal it, but it could not remove it. Now, are you ready? I want you to think about John 3.16 for a minute. For God loved the world in this way. He gave. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. What did God do after he gave the people his law as an act of grace and they failed to keep it? He gave his one and only son. You ever wonder why it's worded that way? He gave, he gave his one and only son as grace in place of grace. As grace upon grace to come and live as a human being who obeyed the law perfectly and then died for those who violated it. Listen to Galatians 4, 4 and 5. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. But to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave them the right to be called what? Children of God. Romans 8, 3 and 4. For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. Not by natural assent. Not by the will of man, not by the will of of the flesh, but of God. 
What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The word of the law could not give us life, but the word who became flesh and dwelt among us can. Why? Because he is life itself. And we receive that life from him by receiving him and believing in his name. Maybe you struggle reading through the Bible. Maybe it feels more like a burden than it does a blessing. Maybe that that reading plan is super daunting for you. Maybe you're just bored with scripture. You've forgotten what it what's even about. Maybe open the word of God to find proof text for your political views or your moral standards. Maybe you search its pages because you love uh, theological knowledge and, and doctrine. Don't miss. Don't miss the glorious reality of what John is saying here in the written word of God. We have been giving been given, given the living word of God, the uncreated and the incarnated logos. Jesus is the full expression of God's faithful love to forgive iniquity and rebellion and sin. Grace and truth came to us through him. I told you it gets better. If we stop short of the living word of God, then we've missed the entire point of the written word of God. The written word of God reveals Jesus Christ to us, and Jesus Christ reveals God to us. Let's look at the last verse. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who himself, who is himself God, and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. John closes the prologue as beautifully as he opened it. No one has ever seen God. Even Moses couldn't see God's face and live, right? John says, We have seen God's face in the one and only Son, and he gave us life. The one and only Son who is himself God. Go back to verse 1, and the word was God. Verse 18, and is at the Father's side. Verse 1, and the word was with God. That word that was with God and that was God in the beginning is the word who became flesh and revealed God now and forever. And forever. Jesus is God's complete and ultimate revelation of himself to us. That word revealed in, the, in verse 18 is the Greek word that means uh, to expound, to make, to make known and explain in full. It's where we get the word exegesis from. If you're a theology nerd, a doctrine nerd, you've heard that word. Is God the Son who came to live as a man among us? Jesus has exegeted God. Exegeted God the Father to us. And in the rest of John's gospel, it's designed to show us how the Word who became flesh did exactly that. A preacher's job is to exegete the Word of God, to reveal what's there. We come to hear the Word and not the preacher, but we need preachers who will preach the Word 
But if a preacher is going to make known and explain the word in full, if he's going to exegete the word, the written word for you, then he won't simply reveal what is there. He will reveal who is there. Let me say it another way. We come to hear the logos and not the preacher. But we need preachers who will preach the logos. If we miss Jesus, then we miss God. If we want to know God, we need to know Jesus Christ. And if we want to know Jesus Christ, then we need to see how all of Scripture points to him. We have to have a high view of Scripture. But we also need to keep our view of Christ even higher. Because the written word leads us to the living word. And the living word leads us to the Father. And the Father leads us to life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending us your Son, the truest and fullest expression of who you are. And we thank you for giving us your written word so that we can know your living word and be recreated and adopted as your children to live in light, in the light of your glory and grace forever and ever. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.